Thank you, Christine. Great reminder. Mighty fortress is our God. If you have your Bibles or you want to follow along in the bulletin, we're going to be looking at the parable of the talents. Last week we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And the message was all about the grace of the gospel. And I think it's good to follow up this morning to be reminded that grace shouldn't lead to loose living, that grace shouldn't make us lazy, but we should be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. Grace is not opposed to effort, unless you're trying to cash in that effort as meritorious. Martin Luther used to say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so when God draws us to himself and he makes us his child and and we respond by waving that white surrender flag and we admit that God is God and as C.S. Lewis says, we put down our our weapons and God says, you know, put down your weapons so we can talk. And uh, he entrusts us with the gospel. And he entrusts us with the gospel so much more than than we can just warm a pew on Sunday morning. He has entrusted us Uh, with the gospel and he's given us natural abilities and spiritual abilities and that's what we're going to consider here in this parable of the talents Matthew 25 verses 14 to 30 so we continue in stories from the king and his kingdom for it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants entrusted to them his property To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But but his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. And gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will will more be given and, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a sobering word. Help us to understand it, to apply it to ourselves, and pray that, Lord, we would bear fruit 
that leads not to death, but that we would bear fruit because of our union with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a New York firm that had this bulletin on their bulletin board, and it was a little sticky note, and it said this. It said, sometime between starting and quitting time, without infringing on lunch period, coffee breaks, rest period, storytelling, ticket selling, holiday planning, and the rehashing of yesterday's television programs, we ask that each employee try to find some time for a work break. This may seem radical, but it might aid steady employment and assure regular paychecks. Now, as we consider our talents this morning, our work, our vocation, I want to just take a moment and kind of blow out a few ruts that we can fall into or traps. And I want to connect the dots between the work that you do with the talents that God has given you Monday to Saturday. As we consider the parable of the talents, I don't want you to just think I'm discussing my duties in church, which are important, whether it's your work in the children's ministry the nursery or the youth ministry or the praise team or ushering, counting, greeting. There's lots of things that we can be involved in and need to be involved in. But the Bible says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So who's your boss? And when is he your boss? It's whatever you do. So it's both church, it's natural talents and spiritual talents, it's both. So don't disconnect your natural talents from your spiritual talents. And what I want you to see is, as you use your natural talents, it's great opportunity to use your spiritual talents as a way of showing and telling. It's a good reminder for the ladies with show and tell tomorrow. See, we show and tell the gospel, right? God gives talents. And in the parable of the talents, the talents is not, um, it's, it's related to currency. So I think we just jumped the talents to our talents. First of all, the talents were 75 pounds of either gold or silver. And so, but we apply the as we look at the parable, we kind of apply it to ourselves, we see that it's an entrustment of natural talents and the spiritual gifts that he gives us. I actually got a fortune cookie this week with Jarrell, he was with me, and it said, use your natural talents to get more. And I thought, that's actually communicating what I'm saying this morning. So, Not that I think there's something to fortune cookies. I, we got greatly humored by that. Um, but here's the reality with your natural talents, that God works through them to help mankind. How does God usually protect us? He does it through the vocations of engineers and mechanics and police officers and security guards and firemen and lawyers and good politicians and good county councilmen that have laws and put things in order to protect you. How does God usually teach us? He usually teaches us through the vocation of teachers. Without teachers, we wouldn't be able to read and understand God's word. How does God usually heal us? He usually heals us through the vocations of a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, the lab tech, the dentist, the orthodontist. And how does God let us often see our friends and family and church members and experience fellowship 
and friendship. Well, he does that through the vocation of auto workers and traffic engineers and road crews and oil drillers and 18-wheel tank drivers and car manufacturers and air traffic controllers and pilots and more mechanics. Have you ever thought that that's how God is using people to help you? How does God usually let us experience his beauty and let us experience his beauty in this creation and entertainment through the vocation of the arts, through music, through drama? And how does God usually feed us and our children? Through the vocation of the farmer to provide milk and crops and meat. And so if you're wondering what your place in in the world is this morning, like how in the world does my work make any sense to God? John Stott defined work as this. He said, work is the expenditure of energy. And for some of you, it might be mental energy, but it's the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings three things. Hopefully, fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Those are important. If you can get all three, that's a home run. And so you want to, as Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan writer, said, choose the employment or calling in which you may be most serviceable to God. Choose not that in which you may be the most rich or honorable in the world, but that in which you may do the most good and best escape sinning. And then this other quote, I don't know who this guy is, but I like the quote. He says, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, obviously, sometimes God puts you in circumstances and places where you can't connect all those dots. Sometimes you you might be in a stinky job for a season because, you know, this is what he has for me right now. But ideally, you want <clears throat> to find a place where God is using your natural talents so that you can work in your spiritual talents. And so I said we shouldn't separate the two, your natural talents from the, your spiritual talents, because the idea is to use your vocation, whether you're a police officer or whether you're a pilot or whether you're an engineer or a teacher or you work for the government. You want to use your vocation to usher in kingdom living, and kingdom principles as you're showing them this is the king and this is how he has us live in this world. And so we show and tell the gospel. We show it in our work. We should work better than everybody else because who's our boss? We have the best boss on the planet. And so we wanna have good work and then we wanna be able to tell it with our deeds or with our words of the gospel. And so, I think there are some extremes to watch out for here. One, one would be uh, to get, s- another extreme is to use your work in this culture to get so consumed by it that your identity becomes consumed by your work. Rather, rather than who you are, it's more on what you do. It's a big problem in our community to find your worth, not in resting and being a child of God, but in what we do. And I experienced this recently with the disappointment of all this work that went into shutting down this abortion clinic in Germantown, and then in two months, he sets up shop in Bethesda. And it was a great reminder, I'm a child of God, and my identity is in who I am, not in what I do. Because in what I do, it could be either great, and it was great for a few weeks, and then it was terrible. And, 
you know, that's how life is, isn't it? I mean, you, you hit the home run, you strike out. You know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The results are in God's hands. Our job is to be faithful. And the problem is, as Keller talks about in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he quotes this counselor named Mary Bell, and, he, and she's writing into the culture, and she says, achievement is the alcohol of our time. She goes on and she says, these days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're successful so good things happen. You complete a project and you feel dynamite. The feelings don't last forever and you slide back to normal. You think I gotta start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've gotta have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. So you're working on a deal, it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem's on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite as high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different than any other type of addict. Do you know what I'm talking about? Chris Everett, who was a big tennis player, late 70s, early 80s, <clears throat> number one player in the world for like six years, I think. Um, she said this. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was a somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause in order to have an identity. Now, let me tell you, it's hard to show and tell the gospel when your work is an idol like this and you're living not for the king because you're the king. And the show will be a lot of exhaustion and, and the tell is going to be frustration. And Ecclesiastes has got a lot to say about that. So back to this parable. Natural talents, spiritual talents, use them both for the glory of God, bring them together. In verses 14 and 15, we have this entrustment. In verses 16 to 18, we have an investment. And in verse 19 to 30, we have a settlement. And in 20 to 23, we've got excitement and rewards. And then the last part, we have excuses and retribution. So let's start with entrustment. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. He entrusted to them his property. That's what God has done. And you remember in Acts chapter 1, I like this scene. It says, when they had spoken these things while they watched, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Uh, because Jesus just went up there. <laughs> this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So when it says he went on a long journey in, in this parable, the journey is he went up into heaven. Jesus has ascended. And so let's not just stand and be a bunch of cloud gazers looking up into heaven. God has delivered the goods. Jesus has delivered good to us talents. And Ephesians 4 says, when he ascended on high, he gave us gifts. Ephesians 4 puts it like this. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So he goes up to heaven, he pours out the Holy Spirit, and he gives gifts to every individual believer. 
He gave son to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So anything whereby we can glorify God is a talent, I would say. It's our gifts, our influence, our opportunities, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges, our possession of the language or of the scriptures and our own language. Everything we have is on loan from God. It's, it is, here he has entrusted his property to us. And he's given you all of these gospel graces. And it's incumbent upon us to be good stewards. So we see two big passages about stewards right here on this slide, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Peter 4. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Or as 1 Peter 4.10 puts it, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you're not sure what your gift is, this is how you usually tell. It's when you get the most joy in doing it, and when you do it, you're not exhausted after doing it. And others come alongside of you and say, that was, the, the, the body verifies, that was great. That, that's usually how you tell where your gifts lie. Now God gives us each according to his or her ability, and he sovereignly distributes the gifts as he wills, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12. And to some he gives 10 talents, to some he gives five, and to some he gives two. God is the sovereign agent, and he gives various capacities and abilities to actually appreciate the gospel, to magnify the gospel. And our struggle is, is we often all look at the person that's the 10 talent and get discouraged. I was at the last Presbytery retreat I was on, one of the pastors I greatly respect in the Presbytery, and we were talking about Tim Keller. Now, I don't know who the Tim Keller is in your world, but in pastor's world, Tim Keller's the unicorn, okay? He's a guy that nobody can duplicate, and you know, he has an unbelievable memory, great speaker, winsome with unbelievers, writes lots of books, like everything he does turns to gold, has 5,000 some people go to his church in New York City, and you know, on and on, okay? Who's the unicorn in your field? I mean, your, your field probably has somebody that people are like, man, that, that guy. Well, his, his comment was that he was just talking about learning to be content, that he just said, you know, he's a little bit older than me. He said, I've got more years behind me now than years in front of me in ministry. And I have to be content with my own voice. And he said every once in a while, if he's trying to be like Keller, his wife will say to him afterwards, what was that in the sermon? Like you were trying to, you were trying to be like Keller and don't do that. You know, and so with us, it's the same thing. In your world, don't be a copycat. Be who God made you. Be content. And so God invests these gifts, and it's easy to be envious of someone whom we think has more. But God is coming. He's gone off on this long journey, which is he's gone off into heaven, and now he's entrusted his property. He's entrusted these talents to us, to every one of us that's a believer. And there's gonna be a settlement of, okay, how did you do with all of this I gave to you? That's what the point of this parable is. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we make it our aim, <clears throat> Paul says, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
not just unbelievers, but believe everybody, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So here's this interesting thing. We're saved by faith, but we're judged by works because if we have true faith, it's gonna lead to good works. And so we've been married to him. We belong to one another, Romans 7 says, that we would bear fruit, not leading to death, but now bearing fruit to God. So the idea is if you're married to Christ, now you're gonna have spiritual fruit that's like children, and this Romans 7 analogy, and you're gonna bear fruit, and, and what you're gonna bear fruit now is no longer to death, but to God. You're gonna have spiritual fruit, offspring, that's gonna be pleasing to God as because you're united to him. And so... That's what we have in this parable. We have two are full of excitement. Can you, you can feel the excitement. They're excited to tell the Lord what they've done with, with the talents. And then, so there's, there's, and two servants are called good and faithful and they're called to enter into the joy of your master. That heaven's this place of joy and you're gonna enter into joy. But the, but the one servant is just the opposite. Not good and faithful, but wicked and lazy. And so two are welcomed into the joy of the Lord and one is cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two are rewarded for their productivity with more responsibility in heaven and one's experiencing retribution for his lack of productivity, his laziness, and is removed from all responsibility and cast out. And so the lazy man is where we kind of want to focus in on. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. Or in the parable of the minas, which is very similar, I knew you to be a severe man. And it's this Greek word for austere, rigid, harsh, demanding. You know, this, this is a God who's like a Pharaoh who demands more bricks, and, and, but he gives no straw. Or he's like a, a Laban who would change your, labor, change your wages 10 times and then sneak in Leah on your wedding night and you wake in the morning and behold, it was Leah. Is that what you think about God? That God is this, you know, demanding person and he's sneaky and tricky and he demands more than you can keep coming up with and he keeps changing the wages and you can never please him? You see, J.C. Ryle says about, and this is an interesting fault line of where the battle is fought, is your view of God is very much going to affect how you work. If you think God is hard and God is not good, it's going to be hard to have a good attitude. J.C. Ryle says, hard thoughts of God are a common mark of all unconverted people. They first misrepresent him, and then they try to excuse themselves for not loving and serving him. And so the servant is, is basically saying to his master, why did you put so little confidence in me by giving me only one talent? What could I really do with that anyway? Considering there wasn't much profit that I could see from it. So to get even with you, I decided not to do anything with the money. He feels slighted, and, view, and he views the master through his own greedy eyes and through self-pity. And so he expects to be commended for playing it safe. And it was really a lame excuse for his sloth. And so the master's reply is, your own words convict you. If you were so sure that I was hard, which he's not, but if that's really what you thought, you should have exerted yourself all the more then. There's a hypocrisy in your own words and by your own words, they will condemn you because of the contradiction in your excuse. What this servant didn't realize is he dug a hole to bury the talent. He was digging his own hole to bury himself. The reality is he that's lazy in God's work is busy in the devil's work. And so 
He may have been envious of others who've been given more talents. The reality is that God uses common people. Abraham Lincoln, you remember this famous quote? Abraham Lincoln said, God must love the common people because he made so many of them. The world depends on the man with one talent. But the one talent, by the way, was the equivalent of 20 years wages back then. So the 75 pounds of, uh, of gold would be 20 years wages. That would be like entrusting to you a million bucks. Well, is that not good enough? Well, we're looking at the one that got 10 million or 5 million, but a million bucks is a lot of money to be entrusted with. But God works through the common people. Who told Naaman the leper about the prophet in Israel? It was a slave girl from Israel. Who convinced Naaman to go wash in the Jordan seven times when he was in a rage? It was his servants who came along to him and said, what did he say to you? What? He said, you'd be healed. You shouldn't be in a rage. Go wash in the river. Who told Paul about the plot to take his life? It was some young boy, not even named. Amos was a fig picker. David and Moses, they were shepherds. Gideon said he was the least of God's people. The disciples were mostly fishermen. They were insignificant people in the world's eyes, yet used for significant things. There's not many noble, not many mighty. That means most of us qualify this morning. God uses ordinary people. William Barclay said, God does not want extraordinary people who do extraordinary things not nearly so much as he wants ordinary people who do ordinary things extraordinarily well. But the excuses go deeper with this guy. He says to his master, look, you have what is yours. As if to say, you should be thankful that I kept it intact and now I'm returning to you what's yours. Instead of admitting his guilt, he wants to be thanked for bringing this, for not doing anything with the, with the talent. Just playing it safe. Here's a really interesting thing. You want to play it safe and you get cast out. You have been freed up to take risks for the kingdom of God. Freed up by King Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. You don't want to play it safe. You want to take your talents and risk engage leave the results to the lord we those are his but we need to engage our culture engage the people we work with we can't just bury ourselves keep our head down mind our own business keep to ourselves and live for diversions in life i learned something in talk radio this just listening to sports talk radio they said do you know what football is this was Zabin to Cooley. You know what football is? It's a diversion. That's what it is. It's a diversion. It's a diversion. Now, diversions are nice every once in a while, but if you live for diversions, if you live for watching football, live for going to see the new Thor movie, live for the new entertainment, the new game that's come out on Xbox or, or PlayStation, you live for diversions. What is that? That's digging a hole. And that's burying your treasure and living for diversions. Porter shared a few verses from Ecclesiastes with me this week. As Porter's landed on where he's going to plant a church. We can't tell you yet because the presbytery needs to know first. But, but I met with him and he shared this verse from Ecclesiastes. And it says, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. 
As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and in the evening, let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or will both will do equally well. You see, it's a powerful passage about live for the present. Don't worry about the future. You can't figure out everything in the future. You gotta live for the present. Make good on the present. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lately and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time frame which our duty can be done or any grace received. But in order to do this, we have to be convinced that God is good, that he's the best boss who's loved us with an everlasting love. C.S. Lewis again put it like this in this classic quote from The Problem of Pain. He says, you ask for a loving God and you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy or conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds persistent as the artist's love for his work. That's how God loves his people. And Lewis says, I call this a divine humility because it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. It's a poor thing to come to him as a last resort to offer up our own when it's no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms, but he's not proud. This is the gospel he stoops to conquer. He will have us even when we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there's nothing better to be had. What's that a reminder of? We all went looking after everything else first and we came to God last and we try to lick the dust of the earth and find our satisfaction there. But God so loved us that he gave his only son. And so as we come to the table, we're reminded of God's great humility, his great love for us, that God is good. He laid down all of his talents to save his people. And now he's asked us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him and to make much of him with what he's given to us. That's what we do as believers. So as we come to the table, let's renew our, our vows as we're reminded of his great love for us. Let's pray. Lord, we need this fresh reminder of our purpose in this world. Give insight, Holy Spirit, to each of us how we can do better, what we can change and do differently, how we can risk more. Forgive us for playing it safe. Help us to use our talents to magnify you and to be doing good for others. We ask that you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.